Hello everyone, this is Dan. Welcome to Eventually Super Train, episode 59. The short-lived TV show podcast, giving love to shows that never got enough, and eventually we shall cover Super Train. Normally I start off with some music, but I, I ain't got time for that palaver right now, folks. I want to jump right in to episode 25 of The Green Hornet, episode 2 of Future Cop, and episode 14 of Bourbon Street Beat. Kristen Mitchell and myself gonna have a great time and in fact here's some music for you mr dozier another challenge for the green hornet his aide cato and their rolling arsenal the black beauty on police records a wanted criminal the green hornet is really brit reed owner publisher of the daily sentinel his dual identity known only to his secretary and to the district attorney and now to protect the rights and lives of decent citizens rides the green hornet Boy, everyone, can you believe it? Episode 25 of The Green Hornet, March 10th, 1967. Where were you? I know where you were, and you should be ashamed. Invasion from Outer Space, Part 1. Writer Art Weingarten. What, Weingarten? Director Daryl Hollenbeck. There's a new producer on this episode whose name I forgot to write down, and I should have written down. And I might have it for you in a moment... Um, but I might not. Um, but yeah, it's Invasion from Inner Space Part 1, produced by Stan Svetner. Stan comes in for the last two episodes. He's like the, um, who's the guy? Um, Fred Freeberger, who came in during the third season of Star Trek and tanked the show. Um, this guy came in in the last two episodes of Green Hornet and possibly tanked the show, although I think if the ratings were low... Um, they were probably already on their way out. But this is an interesting episode to me. Okay, I'm going to introduce my co-host on this, um, and and then I will yell out... No, I won't. I'll, I'll be good. I was going to yell out my favorite thing about this episode, but... I'm, oh, I just bumped my dog as she growled at me. Sorry, Crump. Um, I've got with me here, folks... We haven't got this far in a show. We haven't done 25 episodes of a show, so I'm a little nervous. Um, but I have with me here someone who will make me less nervous, I hope... The wonderful Kiki Wrights, a.k.a. Kristen Hawes. Kristen, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, Dan, considering we're getting towards the end of, of the series. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I got water here, but I feel like I need Jesus to make this into wine. Because, um, how? what do you have? Do you have anything there? I, I Because we are getting to the end, I, I have my wine with oh. me to, to brace myself okay. as yeah, we get I'm... closer to the end. I might have wine for the last episode, which will probably make that segment about two hours long. But uh, I apologize. Um, but we are gonna let let me let's let's di- let's dive right in. Uh, let me give you a little plot breakdown, and then we'll be back with our discussion of the episode. Here we go. Oh boy, everybody! The Green Hornet, episode twenty-five, Invasion from Outer Space, Part One, March tenth, nineteen sixty-seven. You hear a dog barking in the distance. No, I'm I'm a. Uh, 
got a new mic and I got windows open. You listen to the Bourbon Street Beat plot, uh, plot breakdown. I'll tell you what's going on, why you're hearing so much noise. It's just one of those days. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, uh, episode 25. And basically, it begins well, it begins with Miss Case and uh, Britt together at his place. And they're seat, seated at his bar. And, and the camera actually begins with a pan up the stool where Miss Case is sitting. And it's wonderful. And it's everything you, you want something like that to be. And all of a sudden, they hear stuff over the radio. And the world's going crazy. It's going crazy. Listen. An unidentified flying object has reportedly crashed and burned in a field some two miles outside the city limits. Cato, First reports quickly. coming in state eyewitnesses cited the object flying due east just before it crashed. Who's on the city desk? More detail on the spot. Get him on the phone. We switch over to our mobile unit at the Trouble? scene of the crash. Sounds like it. This is mobile unit two at the crash site. Flames and a tremendous explosion when the craft reportedly crashed have completely consumed the entire saucer-like object, leaving only debris spread over a wide area. Seconds before the craft exploded and burst into flames, witnesses report, they saw six to eight persons exit the object and race across the open field. Hold on for Mr. Reed. Turn you now to New Center. Bill, what's the story on that crash? Five or six people, including an off-duty cop and a doctor, swear they saw the saucer flying east. Right, then all of a sudden it started to wobble, lost altitude, and crashed. A report just came in. There's a rumor racing around town that we're being invaded from outer space. Well, the people are beginning to panic. In the north section, the highways leading out of the city are beginning to jam up. I'll send out all available mobile crews to cover that end of it. Bring the car around front. Get Scanlon. Craziness, aliens, a loud explosion, and yep, right before the credits, several, I wasn't going to say goofy, several aliens enter the place, and they, they have a little talk with Brett, their main guy, who's not 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 Victor Buono, but, but could be in another world, talks to Brett. Who are you? We are wayfarers, Mr. Reed. Wayfarers on an interrupted journey. And what we want is your complete cooperation. Approximately 45 minutes ago, our ship went out of control and crashed. You mean you were in that saucer? Precisely. You don't expect us to believe that you're visitors from outer space. I not only expect you to believe it, I insist upon it. For obvious reasons, we do not wish to remain here any longer than absolutely necessary. And that is why we sought you out, Mr. Reed. Why me? Your television station. You are going to tell your fellow citizens to leave us alone. All we want is safe passage out of the city to some unpopulated area where one of our sister ships can land and pick us up. And if I refuse? Vemma, tell Mr. Reed what would happen if he refused. At this moment, five of our sister ships are hovering high above us. Unless you do exactly as Lita asks, they shall destroy your entire city in an instant. Well... I'll make the announcement. Marvelous. Mm-mm, those are the best kind of aliens. So it's basically we need you to clear this path on this road. Yeah, we because we need to take our our ships down there so we can get out of here. And Britt, you know, says, okay, you know, okay, we're gonna we're gonna work with that. And he makes the announcement to do that. He calls Scanlan, and Scanlan has it done. And then the aliens kind of knock Britt and Cato out and take. Uh, Miss Case, which isn't really part of the bargain, and as they leave to do their alien stuff, Scanlon shows up with an announcement. Right. 
What happened? Where are they? They got Casey. Cato, get the... Wait, wait. I just had word from the Air Force that they're sending a load of top-secret electronic equipment through this area within the hour. And that includes an H-bomb missile warhead. You know what route the truck is taking? The same one we've just cleared. Are they aliens? Or are they a bunch of goofy-looking jerks running a big goofy jerk party? I don't want to tell you now. We'll spoil it soon enough. I, I, it, we always struggle with how much to spoil. And in a two-party, you got to spoil something uh, if there's something like this to spoil. So are they aliens or are they not? I'm not going to tell you right here, but we might tell you in the breakdown. Let's join Kristen already in progress. All right. Doesn't that sound like fun? Doesn't that sound like nothing you've ever heard before on a Green Hornet episode? Uh, Kristen, what did you think of this one? Jiffy Pop aliens. That's all I can <laughs> yes. think. Yes. <laughs> when we, when I first saw that, well, when I first saw this episode, I was a kid. But when they replayed Green Hornet on MeTV, my roommate and I were watching it, and um, the the aliens show up, and they're wearing these. Uh, silver suits, all except for Vama. She's in gold. And my roommate and I just looked at each other and I'm like, they're Jiffy Pop aliens. They're made out of Jiffy Pop. <laughs> so if you're if if you're if you're young, um, you don't know what Jiffy Pop is. Back on these foil, like it was like a foil flat foil disc yes. with a handle and you did it over it's, your burner and yeah. it would pop the popcorn and it would expand. Yeah. Isn't it the, the open, isn't Drew so, Barrymore making Jiffy Pop in the beginning of Scream? Am I wrong? Yes, or? yes. Okay. I think oh. she is, yeah. Yes. So Scream, so, folks, Scream. Not Byron Quisenberry Scream, Wes Craven's. Yeah. Look at just the, that opening scene. She's making, she's actually making Jiffy Pop. Um, but that's all I can think and I, okay, here's the thing. I love this episode i love the next episode i love both parts of this two part <laughs> um because i shouldn't it's a it's ridiculous when it starts out because you have your casey and brit are late at night doing work brit's going for a late dinner dressed in a tux and i'm like where are you going to dinner at that it has such a strict pony you know, room code? yeah the pony room <laughs> i don't think so not with that now that tux no um but there, so then you get the news report that there's aliens or something's crashed and you don't see anything. You're just going by what the reporter says. And so you're just and then Britt calls the newsroom and everything. So you're only getting word of mouth, which I really, really liked. And then the, the, the aliens blow through his door and zap Cato and they're very rude and invasive and very, very arrogant. For considering they look like they're dressed as, as you know Jiffy Pop popcorn uh, containers, it's just you're like you spend that whole bit of time going, you know what is this? Why is this happening? What what this is ridiculous? And then you know things progress. Casey has to gets taken hostage. You go to that fancy truck that has some rich person's foyer in the back of it for some reason. <laughs> Along with this, you know, 1960s computer equipment that takes the front part of it up. I'm like, that truck couldn't even move. And you find out that, well, no, they're not aliens. It's just the most extra dude ever contriving to, to steal an H-bomb. 
but he's he's doing it in the most dramatic and theatrical way possible, and I love it. I love every bit of it because it's just it's outlandish, as you know. I mean, it's just really outlandish. As but you buy it because um, the guy who plays Mabuse he sells it. He sells that he is a brilliant man and he's a little bit unhinged, mm-hmm. and it's Larry Mann. Um, but you, you totally buy that. He would be like, yes, I'm. this this is a good idea. This is how I'm going to steal this H-bomb. It, it, it makes perfect sense. You buy that. And you buy that he's a dangerous, kind of slightly unhinged dude. Mm-hmm. So I just, I love this episode. I love the, the second episode, too. So what do you think? I, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I think you, you, you posted on Twitter an image from this episode, which I had never seen. This is one I don't remember at all. Um, you Like a week before we were recording this, and I saw it and I was like, what in the hell happened to Green Hornet? Well, Green Hornet got a new producer, and the new producer has some new ideas. You know, whenever you get a new boss, they've got new <laughs> ideas. I, I got to tell you, I, I started watching this episode, and they burst through uh, uh, Britt's um, back door. And I sat there watching it, and part of me was saying, please let these be aliens. Please let these be aliens. And another part of me was saying, if they're not, let this work. The moment Brit says it's Dr. I always I always used to say Dr. Mabuse, but it, Dr. Mabuse, uh, how is it? Mabuse. Mabuse, all right. Because I'm a, I'm a big Fritz Lang fan, and Dr. Mabuse, I always said Mabuse because I always thought it was like abuse. Dr. Mabuse, Mabuse, Mabuse the Gambler, uh, the silent film, is a favorite film of mine. And and I love the character of, of the Doctor. I'm going to call him the Doctor I, uh, um, just for the moment because I'm going to say Mabuse or Mabuse and I'm going to get it wrong. I love this character. I love this character. It's a character from novels. It's a character in like a half a dozen films, most of which are directed by Fritz Lang, which means they're great. To me, the moment I, I'm watching the episode, I don't know what the hell's going on. There's there's this woman in gold blasting Bruce Lee, and it's like, what the hell? And the thing is that the moment it's revealed that this is Dr. Because it's like, what the hell is going on? And it's like, oh, these are humans up to some nonsense. Okay, what's going And then Brit is, well, the Green Hornet is sitting in the Black Beauty and says, Dr. Mabuse. And I was like, what? And to me, the moment he said that, I was like, I'm in. I'm completely in because I feel like they're trying to set up, uh, if there had been a second season, this would have been Green Hornet's nemesis, Dr. Mabuse, because he's this uh, character from novels and films who this criminal genius mastermind. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool that at the end of the series, this producer, possibly in a goofball way, um, decided to give him sort of like what I feel would have been a nemesis. And I, I, I think it works. I love how arrogant he is. I love the way that when he's an alien, pretending to be an alien, he's so, um, he's so into it. You know, he's so into uh, this. Uh, there, there's a point where it's like, um, we're on. I forget what he says. Like, uh, we're on the planet, and he looks at um, Velma Earth. 
Earth, and it's like, oh gosh, okay, Mabuse, I get it. But I, 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 I like it very much because it's it's sort of like a um. I was actually thinking it's sort of like a King Tut from Batman, or to Victor Buono it one more time. Uh, his oh crap, what was his character from Man from Atlantis? I can look him up. Um, but he was in the first Man from Atlantis TV. Man from Atlantis had four TV movies and 13 hour long episodes. Victor Buono is the villain in the first TV movie and like three episodes of the series. And he is very much like this character. He is very much like a super arrogant character who keeps getting bested by Patrick Duffy in little shorts looking super cool. You know, like, wow. And and that's sort of the way this is. It's like, it, it's, it's sort of like, Brit, I don't think Brit is as smart as as the doctor is but he, he he's just kind of on top of it and the doctor is just is arrogant in a way that brit isn't and the arrogance keeps getting in the way of what he's trying to do throughout the two episodes which is a lot of fun and so we're, we're not really talking i'm just trying not to talk this second episode here but i i really enjoyed this episode and i like the way that em- so 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 we have the announcement and I, I agree with you um that I love the we don't see the invasion in quotes but we hear it and it's convincing but then immediately when the doctor and his people walk in like the first thing he does is look at Miss Case and say well you're very attractive mm, yes and that's what I would do if I was dressed in a tinfoil outfit and I walked in and I saw her <laughs> And I can, can I just say here, I was going to leave this for my observation portion, but the opening moment of this episode, the camera is on the ground, it pans up a bar stool, and it pans up Miss Case, and she is in, I think, her first and only miniskirt in the series. Am I right? Am I wrong? Yeah, I think, yeah, that dress was pretty short. I mean, she's had some short dresses, but that was probably the shortest. That, that, that and it's... It's like a great, like it's like a black, um, a black uh, skirt outfit-y thing with like, um, like um, uh, yellow rings on it, and it's it's definitely like thigh high, and she's got like boots that go up to um, like mid calf sort of thing. And it's like you're watching, you're going, whoa, someone else is in charge of this show right now. Oh my <laughs> gosh, and I don't know, I don't know if I'm fully convinced by these guys, you know who look like they're going to pop into gloriously buttery popcorn, but I am convinced by, by Miss Case. And there, there was a moment, you, oh, oh no, her, her, wait a minute, her, her dress is green, I think, I just, I have it playing right here. Her dress is green, and the, the, the rings are, um, ah, crap, they're not going back to it. But I will say, before I stop talking about why, I did really enjoy this episode. I, if you go online, a lot of people denigrate this and say, this is why Green Hornet ended. No, you know what, folks? In a 26-episode season, by the time you're making the 25th episode, you're pretty much done. Um, I, I don't think they're... Eh, I, I don't think these last two episodes are the death knell. I think it was already going to be canceled and they were just fulfilling contracts at this point. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to bring us down. 
I, I and I, I went off on that tangent. I forgot what I was talking about. Something great, I bet. So let let me. Uh, I'll come. I'll come. I'll come back. I had a point. I'm sorry. I I I, I got. To, I've actually have um, uh, Doctor Mabuse here on the screen, and I kept looking at. It. Oh no no! It's the there's a sequence at the end where they're at some sort of big furnace or something, and they're fighting the green and cases. Miss cases like. Uh, attached to a conveyor belt that's going to drop her into a furnace and Green Hornet and Kato are fighting all the Jiffy Pop guys by the furnace and I kept thinking one of them is going to get too close and burst into popcorn and this is going to be the most delicious fight we've ever seen but um, having said that what uh, what what are some of your what are some of the details what are some of the things you loved about the episode well I love every bit of it but um, I love that <laughs> I mean, it's true. I do. I I have such love for this episode. And the the second part of this episode, this is probably my favorite two-parter of of the series. Oh, okay. Because it's just, it gets, it just, it keeps getting better. And I love that here we have Casey. Casey's no damsel in distress. We've seen this. No, no, no. She was, um, oh, the the frog one. Oh yes, yeah, no, she kicked out kicking off her shoes and and yeah, yeah, yeah. So we know, so we know that you know, Mabuse doesn't realize what he's getting yeah. himself into, taking Casey along. She she triggers her her scanner, yes, and then she throws the champagne and and oh, that's such one. a good moment, yeah. It is, it is such a beautiful move because she's sitting there, she gathers information as much as she can, she seizes her opportunity and just goes for it. She you know she tosses the the champagne on stuff. Stuff, you know, sparks, uh, because nothing was waterproof back then. And she, she just bolts. And so these Jiffy Pop guys are chasing her all over the countryside. She steals their car, mm-hmm. and they she ends up wrecking it. But she still, she steals their car. Like, you're not very good uh, alien henchmen there if you're leaving your keys in the car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there, there, is the, there is that weird... Um, I don't know if it's a dark moment or what it is where um, he, Mabuse is so um, like, oh, yes, we're going to spend time together. But the moment she takes off, he's like, kill her. Yeah. It's like, whoa, that's like that's like Green Hornet and Kato. They that used to kill everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, Mabuse is in there and he's just like, you know, he wants the things, you know, lying women in power. And I'm like, there has never been a woman that you have encountered in your life that has let you touch their boob. Like, even <laughs> Bama's like, no. Don't, let's not even pretend. Uh, you can dress me in the um, gold suit and I will shoot electricity for you. But you ain't getting near this. Yeah. This, this is... This is my business. I'm a little worried about Vanna. I honestly think she might actually think she's from space. But we'll, we'll talk about that more in the next episode. I think, yeah, the um, next episode is that one, yeah. Back, back, back to Casey's escape. So she, they end up, like, she wrecks the car, and she takes off on foot, and, like, evades these guys over the countryside. And she's running in those fantastic boots in this mini dress, and she's putting yes. these dudes to shame. And what does she do? She runs up and asks the dude for help. He sees the Jiffy Pop aliens and is like, no, and leaves. And I'm like, that's a man for you. Well, she Thanks. picks. She well, it's funny because yeah, she's getting chased by these henchmen, and she runs up to like an old rummy, like uh, <laughs> sort of just hanging out. Like I just got off the. I'm uh, I'm I'm a hobo. Enjoy me. You know, help me, help me. No, Miss Case, you you've made an error. Mm. 
right there, I think. Um, but And it's funny, too, because a lot of this stuff is also very day for nighty. So, so you're kind of, a lot of it is like, what am I looking at here? And, um, oh, okay, yeah. But that's, um, I, I, I actually, I was thinking of, and this is, this is semi-obscure, but there's a film called Kidnapped Co-Ed from the 70s where uh, a gal is basically uh, an heiress has been kidnapped by this guy and he's taking her all around this the country and they're getting into all sorts of weird adventures and she escapes from him at one moment runs into a field runs up to an old guy with a cane and she says please help me please help me he's after me please help me and the old guy says i can't help you lady i'm blind and it's it's just such a weird moment, and that's what I thought of when I saw this, because I was like, she just she chose the oldest, most decrepit guy she could find to ask for assistance. I would have kept on running. I would have I would have well, hoped that that a Bruce Wayne or someone was over the hill, you know, or maybe uh, Marty <laughs> Milner or something. I don't know. I would have like been like, you need to call the police and keep going. Yeah, exactly. Please. Yeah, the, the, and then- these. And then she, you know, you know, she's she still is trying to fight these guys off. And what happens? She gets thrown on that conveyor belt. Her, I think her sleeve oh. gets caught. Which there yes. you go. There's sixties uh, tailoring for you, you know, <laughs> fashion. But that didn't rip like today. That would have just ripped off as soon as the conveyor yeah, belt. She would have slid like right down. Been done. Slid right down the belt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so she's going up there, and you know, lucky for her, Hornet and Kato come along, and it's great because the guys like let her burn, and I'm like, that's Green Hornet talk because we've seen that where he's just like, well, there's nothing we can do here. That was basically the same attitude, like, yeah. well, she's taken care of. That was yeah, and that, then, that know, actually that sh- that shocked me right there. It was just like she's she, because folks, this isn't like like there's the early episode of Batman where Bruce Wayne is like on a conveyor belt rolling towards a furnace where it's like, you know, it's 2,000 degrees or something. You're like, that's awful. But this is actually like, it's like a big metal, like, bucket of flame. And she's going to be dropped into it. You know, and so this isn't like she's going to be dropped into like, oh, this is going to be like screaming and screaming and screaming. And this guy says, let her burn, you know. And it's like, what the... No, who 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 trains you? You need to talk to. Can I see your supervisor, sir? This is this will not yeah. stand. I would yeah. like to he- talk to the head Jiffy Pop alien, please. <laughs> please, please, and I'd like to move you close to the the um, the flames so we can have some fun. Yeah, well, there was one guy that Hornet was dangerously close to, like pushing into that furnace. I'm yes, like, this is getting serious. Yeah, it's it's funny for for an episode which starts off kind of as close to camp Batman as Green Hornet gets. There are moments where a bunch of people are about to push him into uh, an inferno, and Miss Case is about to drop literally like head first drop into a pile of flames, which is. As dark as we've seen, possibly darker because there are heroes. But, however, if you're a perv like me, as Miss Case is getting drawn up the conveyor belt, there's an almost uh, uh, there's almost like an upskirt shot of her, and it's like, oh, why did you do that? Don't do that. No, stop. 
This is meant to be... I'm not meant to be looking there. I'm meant to be... Come on. I'm a perv. Sorry, folks. Chris and you talk. I'll, <laughs> I'll chastise myself. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it was... I guess they had to, you know, increase the vulnerability and the peril there by showing that, look, she can't even keep you from seeing her, her underwear. Um <laughs> Oh, but still, I mean, let's give props to Casey because she did come up with a plan to get away. And she and she nearly did. She nearly basically did, you know, orchestrated her own escape. And even if she had, I mean, like, you know, Green Hornet gets up there to try to help her get unhooked from still, even if if Cato hadn't stopped the conveyor belt. Yeah. They both would have gone in because he hadn't gotten her loose in time. Yes. So Cato is actually the big hero there. Thank you, Cato. So hope, yeah, thank you, Cato. I hope you got hugs and kisses for that. You know, you deserve the acknowledgement. I think so. I think if there had been a 27th episode or a season 2 episode 1, it would have begun with, thank you for saving me from those crazy Jiffy Pop aliens who wanted to burn me in that giant furnace. And he would have gotten a smooch. Yes. I would hope so. I'm still, I, I still hold out hope that Casey and Kato would have hooked up, but you know that's just me. I, I think so, possibly. Yeah, Brit, Brit would have been like Bruce Wayne, a little, a little too, not aloof. Aloof isn't the word, but um, uh, sort of in a space where he was too involved in what he was doing. And the thing, you got it. Give it to Brit at the end of the day. He, he's playing a game with all the bad guys generally, not in this. Uh, two-parter or the last episode where he's he's trying to be bad uh and but he's actually good whereas batman is good and so he's brit is has given himself the um the trickier situation of the two of them and he's 25 25 episodes he's pulled it off i think so uh so what 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 else do you have for this one i'm gonna scan my notes I do like that it was only an electric shock that could defeat Kato. Yes, I love that. It's like I I, I always think of um, a Spider-Man's villain Electro coming in. I love the I love the villains that shoot electric stuff from their fingers. I don't know why I don't know why I like that so much. Um, but yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, the only person who will defeat Bruce Lee is a woman who shoots electric rays from her fingers. Yeah, shit, that would... Yeah. Yeah, I'm out, Jack. I'm, I'm just, I just, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I'm done. I'm done, yeah. And and they, she does that twice to him, right? right. And, uh, to, to, to... Yeah. Uh, to Brit, too. Doesn't she do, she does like a double-hander, yeah. like... She does it once, she does it once to Kato initially, when K- and then Kato wakes up, because Casey thinks he's dead. Mm-hmm. And Kato wakes up, and then when they leave, I guess, to do anything, she shocks them both. Yes, yeah, to, to knock them both out. Okay, yeah. All right. Um, do you, well, I, I guess, do, do you have anything else on this one? I guess we could, do, do you want to do some trivia on this one, or do you want to save it for the second one, or, or what would you like? Uh I'm gonna I'm gonna do the trivia for I'll do the trivia this one so we'll probably be talking quite a bit for the next one so real quick trivia on this one our our evil villain here Doctor Mabuse which I love your idea of him coming back and being 
like a recurring villain. That would have been that would have been amazing. I, I, but anyway, I, th- I, th- I think so. I that's what it that's what it felt like to me because he's such an iconic. Um, uh, that Doctor Moose is such an iconic character to to some folks uh, uh, to me. <laughs> so Doctor Moose is played by Larry D. Man. Uh, he was in a few episodes of Green Acres, so you've probably seen him there. Um, oh yeah. He was on. He was in. Yeah, he was in uh, the the Wish Book, the Picnic, and the Ex Secretary. He played oh, three different yeah. characters. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then. He was also in uh, Do Not Fold, Spindle, or Mutilate, that TV movie. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Amanda, if you're listening, uh, that's a fun <laughs> one. That's a super fun one. Yeah. Wow. But uh, something that, you know, most people probably don't realize, we all actually grew up with him, if you're of a certain age, because he does the voice of Yukon Cornelius in the Rudolph movie. Get out of here. Whoa. That's what that's that's what IMDb says, and I'll go with it. Well, do you, do you know that my wife was in a a play a few years ago called Rudolph? It was it was a she played Yukon Cornelia in a play. It was a musical. Oh. It was Rudolph the Red Hosed nice. Reindeer. Rudolph the Red Hosed Reindeer, and and she yeah she played Yukon Cornelia. Wow! Oh my gosh! I didn't realize that. That's that's incredible. I'll have to tell her that because we actually have on our mantelpiece a picture of her with the gang. Because I saw that when they did that show, I saw that like three times, and she was so great. And she had a um, yeah, she yo wow, yeah, she had her um, she had a pickaxe, and she she you know, licked the end and go nothing. Uh, and she, it was so great. Oh my gosh, she was. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize. That's awesome. Okay, thank you so much. Wow. Um, Vama was played by Linda Gay Scott. She was actually in um, two episodes of Batman. She played Moth in The Ring of Wax and Give Him the Axe, which were Riddler episodes. So she was, she's was she been a henchwoman before. Okay. Shugo, you would probably know him. Um, he's played by Arthur Batonitis. I have no idea how to say that name. Batonitis. <laughs> I just mangled it. But he played Mr. Kirkland in Police Academy 2, 3, 4, and 6. What? Yes. What? No. Tackleberry's father-in-law. I love Mr. Kirk. I love the Kirklands. Yes. He was also in um, Man from Atlantis. We mentioned that earlier. Um, He was in an episode called The Disappearance. He was also in an episode of Hawaii Five-0. Oh, yeah. then we have um, Christopher Dark, who played Martin, the uh, radio Jiffy Pop alien. Sure, He's less yeah. alien than most. I like that their names were Vanna, Shugo, and Martin, because, of course, they were. I like this little weird bit of trivia. He was in uh, Terror in the Sky, oh, which yeah. was the updated remake of Zero Hour, which was the movie that inspired Airplane. Airplane. <laughs> yeah. And then, randomly... There, the guy who played Major Jackson, his name's Brett King, this was actually his last acting credit. He moved his family to the Bahamas and opened the Coral Sands Hotel and became, like, uh, kind of known for that. So, hey. Wow. That, that's not up, I think. God bless. Yeah. So, that's all the trivia I've got for this. <laughs> Yay! All right. All right. So, we're, we're going to – this is the first of, of uh, two-parters, so we may have more stuff. 
I don't know what I have, but uh, maybe I have something. But um, Krista, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Uh, you can find links to my Rerun Junkie posts there, all my other posts, links to my published work, links to my Patreon. You can buy me a coffee. I've got something called Writing for Tips there. And if you want my rambling trivia notes in real time, you can follow me on Twitter at kikiwrites. Hooray! All right, everyone. So we're poised here. It looks like uh, Mabuse. Mabuse. I, I prefer Mabuse. I've only watched the. I've, I've watched. They were in German when I watched them, and I don't remember how they were pronounced because it's been a, a while since I saw them. But um, uh, so he's got. He's about to take control of an H bomb, and that is going to lead us into our final Green Hornet discussion. So I'm going to. I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to give you this. Friday Night Movie Presentation. Hey everybody, it's March 25th, 1977. The Mad Mad Bomber. Teleplay by Ken Kolb, Harold Livingston. Story by Ken Kolb. Directed by Ted Post. Ted, don't be a baby. And this was an actual two-hour TV movie. Presented as a TV movie and also the second, I guess, third episodes, as it were, of Future Cop. So let's dive right in. The episode begins with uh, Cleaver going to pick up Haven at the laboratory and bringing him to Bundy, and they all go to their morning, um, you know, uh, I don't know what, it, what it's called, where they all sit together and they chat, and, and the, um, they did on Hill Street Blues all the time, and, and, the, and the cop tells them uh, the, what's going on for the day. Morning meeting, and you, you see there is a very suspicious-looking guy who looks a lot like Beef from Phantom of the Paradise with a big fake mustache complaining about something to the desk cop. In the meeting, uh, the main cop points out that they got one of those great notes that's constructed out of like different typesettings and letters from newspapers and things like that, talking about a woman named Inez and a bomb threat. And and the cop says, "Don't worry about it. It's 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 a goof." And why why is it a goof, sir? Uh, because Inez was one of a group of four terrorists who blew themselves up five years ago. So this is a goof. Oh, okay. So they all go about their business. Although Haven doesn't look convinced. We see the guy with the big fake mustache go into the mail uh, locker room, and put a box of some variety on top of the lockers. Then our guys. Uh, I'm going to call them the gang. Bundy Bundy and uh, and Wheeler and now Wheeler. There's a guy named Wheeler in it. I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna mix this up. Cleaver, Bundy, and Haven. They're out and about, and there is a man who looks suspiciously like Garrett Graham, without the big fake mustache, delivering TVs from the North American security system to a place. Closed circuit TVs. Well, a bunch of punks basically steal 
several of the TVs, bunch of little jerks, and our gang chases after him, catches, uh, recovers the TVs, catches the bad guys, and they go to visit the head of the security system, a place called Bannock, who says, I'm not going to prosecute because it's going to take me forever to get those TVs back. And we learn that Bannock is in cahoots with Yancey, and they've got something planned involving Yancey, who was a Vietnam bombing guy, and... We, we sort of learn that Bannock and this other guy, Wheeler, who's a Navy guy, is uh, have told Yancey that if you help us with something we've got planned, which you will find out about in a bit, uh, we will help you free Inez, who's still alive and in Cuba. Okay, that's great. So the, the gang goes back to the police station and a stink bomb goes off in the locker room. And a little bit later... Um, Colonel uh, Captain Skaggs, who is who is the uh, uh, Cleaver and and Haven superior, calls this, those two in, and says, you know how um, what well, we learned that Haven knew this was going to happen from an anagram in the message that was sent, and Skaggs basically holds up another piece of paper, and he said, well, first off, Skaggs doesn't really like Haven at all. He seems very uncomfortable around him. And he says at one point to Cleaver, um, uh, well, well, Cleaver says, uh, Haven, you should leave. Well, why? Why should he leave? Well, you don't want to hurt his feelings. He doesn't have feelings. It's a nice moment, nice bit from Ernest Borgnine. I'll talk about that um, later on. And, and he, uh, Skaggs holds up the second message and says, what do you see in this? And Haven looks at it and says, uh, I see in the anagram the forum. Oh, my gosh, there's a bomb in the forum. Holy heck what's going to happen, so let's evacuate the forum. So they go out and they basically uh, vacate the Los Angeles forum and as uh, the gang is sort of still investigating who this Yancey guy is, and they go to talk to Bannock about him and they meet Yancey, and Yancey kind of looks at Haven peculiarly peculiarly, and there's sort of a, hmm, that guy's up to something, maybe Bannock's up to something, like I said, there's bad stuff going on with some of these folks, and Haven sort of says very offhandedly that he just realized that the, it's not the L.A. Forum, it's the Pauley Pavilion due to a uh, second anagram hidden in the letter, which causes all kinds of problems because Yancey has set up a bomb in like the local uh, power station and it basically explodes uh, an electrical, I know, is it a relay or whatever, and puts out all the power in the Pauley Pavilion and some of the west side of L.A. and people panic in it and Skaggs is just standing outside going, oh gosh... And he, you know, he, he calls over Haven and he says, Haven, that's it. Give me your badge. We're taking you back to the laboratory and you're getting dismantled. So they take him back to the laboratory and Yancey follows him and places a bomb in Haven's chest. And we learn here, and this is where I'll stop. We learn here what the plan is. And the plan that these three guys have is that the station, the naval station where Wheeler works, takes in a lot of payroll from ships coming in and things like that. And they're getting a $2 million shipment, 5 p.m. on Thursday. So they've had Yancey put a bomb uh, in a, a nearby bridge. And they call in the bomb threat around 4.30. And they've got a chopper, which is disguised as a police chopper. And Bannock and two other guys are going to land in the police chopper, rob the $2 million, and get out of there. And Bannock needs money to pay off debts and... and um, you know, he's, he, what is it, fast women and slow horses. He needs to pay off a lot of debts. Uh, Yancey is there because when this is done, they're supposed to be helping free Inez. And Wheeler just wants some extra money when he retires. And I'll kind of leave it there. Does the bridge blow up? Does 
Haven blow up? Does Wheeler blow up? Does Yancey blow up? Does Cleaver blow up? Does Bundy get uh, another meatloaf sandwich because that one got ruined by the stink bomb? And yeah, it's, it is too bad when Cleaver yaks uh, because of the meatloaf sandwich and the stink bomb. But anyways, that's that's the, the basics of the Madman Bomber. That takes us about eh, not quite an hour into it. It's it's uh, the, the DVD from Mill Creek, as she says in the back, it's like all six episodes on two discs. I I think that's right, is that they are six episodes, it, but it was aired as two. As as you heard in the in the the scheduling, that's just really strange scheduling. That the the Future Cop pilot, well, the TV movie was May first, nineteen seventy six. The first episode was March fifth, and then the second episode aired as a TV movie. And I guess it did air as a TV movie, even though it's clearly... Well, again, we'll talk about this more. It's clearly part one and part two. There's clearly a definite ending to part one, and part two has a sort of a different feel to it. We'll go into that in a moment. But why do I keep saying that? I don't know. I, I like to say that, I guess. I've got... And and forgive me, I mentioned this a couple times in this episode, but i got a brand new setup here with a brand new laptop. So if... I'm, I think I'm a little nervous kind of looking at it and working with it. Oh, please bear with me. So... Yeah, so we get, and I, I wish I could say that sort of like the three bad guys kind of match the three good guys, you know, like at the end of Police Academy 6, City Under Siege, when, you know, the th- uh, our three, what is it, uh, when Tackleberry and um, um, Jones and Hightower meet, oh, one of the guys is in that is, is Garrett Graham again, <laughs> hey, I completely forgotten that he was in that, ha, <laughs> thank you for the comparison, me, so, what we have here is a failure too. No, it's there's a, it's this is a lot to keep in your mind. It's a, the, the 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 disc I have. It's 99 minutes and 19 seconds long, and I'll be honest. This really they shouldn't have shown it together as a two-hour thing. I I, I just the fact that they showed one episode. And the previous one had been the pilot, which was, what, 10, 10 months before. And then they waited three weeks and showed these two episodes together. Feels really weird. Uh, it's it's an okay episode. I mean, it's not fantastic. And, and I, what I found, I watched this twice. Okay, I watched this twice. And the first time I watched it all the way through, and by time I got about 75 minutes in, I was just looking at the timer and looking at the timer, just, oh my goodness, this is dragging on and on. The second time through, however, what I did was I got to where I felt the halfway point was, and we'll talk about that in a moment. I said that again. Don't worry about it, folks. We'll talk about that. Shut up. No, uh, I got to where the halfway point was, and then I waited a day and I watched the rest of it because, so you watch it in the first 50 or so minutes, about the halfway point, is very much the three cops going around trying to discover, uh, well, first trying to figure out about this this robbery of the TVs and then learning about the timing devices and then kind of going after Bannock and Yancey and trying to figure out what's going on as Yancey's sort of twigging to the fact that they know something about him and the bombs and then they, he starts playing tricks on them with the anagrams and things. And then at the end of the 50 minutes, you do get, you're going to be dismantled. He's put in his drawers. The drawers slid away. Yancey somehow sneaks into this high-tech laboratory and talks to Haven, who's out, and puts the bomb in there and says, you're going to be a, you're going to go off at the same time as the bridge. You're a walking time bomb or whatever. And then he leaves. 
and you actually get like the camera kind of I forget if it tracks in or zooms into like the you know the door of this spot where where Haven is 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 sort of lying lying down and and then it goes to black and you see you see right there to be continued well in my mind I can see to be continued and then it cuts to fades in to the interior of the the men's locker room in, in the police station and this works much better as a yeah two separate hour-long episodes than as uh one 99 minute long thing i think it really kind of drags um the, the plot isn't i don't think the plot is is big enough for it i mean it's it's a couple of these these things i mean when when you watch it all together my my only thought when i watched it all together was why wasn't this an hour why did this need to be two hours? You you could have easily had the halfway point of the episode be him them sliding him into the you know putting the bomb on Haven and sliding him into the drawer. Why did it have to be two hours? I don't know. I don't know. It is. I guess it is what it is. I and and the thing like I said is that the the first episode brings you up or the first half brings you up to that point makes him the walking time bomb, and then the second episode kind of begins with with cleaver going in breaking haven out of there and be the two of them sort of begin to covertly work on how to stop the bomber from doing whatever it is next and uh, following some clues and such and they end up sending enlisting uh, uh haven in the uh, navy and sending him in onto that 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 base to try to find out more about wheeler and what he's up to and it is very much it doesn't build I guess is what I'm I'm trying to get to. It it feels like one part and then a second part, and they feel like they should be separate. It doesn't build like a movie would build towards a big climax. It sort of builds and builds and then drops, and then slowly builds and builds and builds and builds, and then it's over. And it's it's a little tiresome. I you know I I guess it, one one of the things with like like two parters is that a, a lot of television two parts. I'm, I'm thinking I, I love a good two-parter. I'm you know, and I'm I'm thinking like when I saw that this was a two-parter, and when I saw it was when it was longer, when I saw it was 99 minutes, I thought, oh, well, this will be fun. So we get some exciting, the ever escalating mad bomber kind of stuff. But it's not really. The first bomb he does is a stink bomb, and the second bomb he does is to blow out the electricity, and then the third bomb, you know, obviously is is diffused on the bridge. So it's not like it actually builds towards stuff because there's like a 45 50 minute gap where there's no bomb related action which makes it strange to call the mad mad bomber and it's sort of the second half of it almost forgets at times what it's doing it gets so i mean there there he he, he keeps haven keeps to try to find wheeler he keeps going back to like this little cafe diner not a commissary but he keeps sitting down and he keeps kind of like going back to it it's like stop going back to there this needs to be more interesting and it sort of isn't now like i said if you watch it in chunks and put some time in between the the episode the parts it works better but it's sort of the 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 tone of the second part is well it's basically the same but but it becomes a different thing whereas the second part we're not quite on the run but yeah uh, uh cleaver has taken i'm gonna call him wheeler i i cleaver has cleaver and wheeler cleaver and wheeler and haven cleaver has taken haven you know like i said and kind of hidden him away and skags and and the the, the doctor at the, at the laboratory are coming after him like we know you got him oh i don't have him i don't know where he is and so there's kind of a yeah it's, it's a different feel and i don't mind <sighs> so some of my favorite shows one one of my favorite shows x-files another one doctor who and x-files used to all not specialize in but a lot of their two-parters 
uh, uh, Colony and Endgame. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, Tunguska and Terma. Um, the three-parter Anasazi, A Blessing Way and Paperclip is a great example. Anasazi is a straightforward X-Files that escalates by the end into something kind of crazy with a big cliffhanger. Blessing Way is quieter, it's a bit melancholy, it explores other more personal realms, and then Paperclip is just 45 minutes of nuts. And and, and, and Doctor Who does that too. The difference between... Um, I, here's a good one. The Pandorica opens the Big Bang from the first Matt Smith series. The Pandorica opens is this huge epic thing with all the monsters and aliens they can bring into and its craziness and it has this huge... I don't know if you, you call it... I guess a triple cliffhanger. And then Big Bang begins with five minutes of following young Amy Pond around as she goes to a museum. And so you're sitting there going, okay, I get it that that's, uh, that's Amelia Pond. What is going on here? And then all of a sudden things start to fall into place. And the, but the episode specifically is about everything getting quieter as opposed to Pandora opens where everything gets louder. And so it's a very different tone. So I never watch them together. I usually keep a day in between them. And I love the episodes. But I would think if you, if you strung them together just the jump from the big triple cliffhanger to spending five minutes just wandering around with the little girl as she's in a museum and she looks around and it's, you know, I, I, I would think you'd go, what the heck is going on? And Future Cop strung together, it it, it definitely drops. I mean, if it had, if, if you could see the second episode beginning with last week on Future Cop and then it ends with you're a walking time bomb. Dad, and and then you get the opening credits, and then you get the and it's it's a little calmer because it's the start of an episode. But stringing them together does no one any does no one any good, unfortunately. Which is which is too bad. I mean, because it's a pretty standard episode of stuff, and Garrett Graham running around is is this kind of crazy bomber wanting his gal back, and and these two other you know oily kind of bad guys. You know, it's it's okay. I just think I just don't know why it was a two parter, and. I really wish I could discuss it as a two-parter, but it aired uh, like this, so I have to talk about it all together. And as it stands, um, you know, the Future Cop TV movie I thought was pretty good, a nice start. Um, oh, the last one, was it Boxing O'Haven or Fighting O'Haven or whatever the heck it was? Uh, Fighting O'Haven. Uh, I thought was was okay. It was okay. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but it was okay. And this... Uh, yeah, as a two-parter, I think this one um, might have worked better. As a strung-together TV movie, the pacing is all off, and um, it's not like Beyond Westworld, like where I watched most of the, most of the five episodes of Beyond Westworld, all five episodes of Beyond Westworld, and I just kept saying, "What is this show doing?" I can see what this show is doing. I just think the network seems to be screwing it over. Here is part of my French. It was, is what seems to be happening. You know, you don't you don't win an um, audience for a new show by showing one episode that somehow relates to a TV movie from ten months before. I don't maybe they, maybe they re-aired the TV movie. I don't know. And then taking that show off the air, taking the show off the air for three weeks, and then showing a poorly paced TV movie. Uh, and then I I'm yeah well I don't know. I don't want to complain too much. It's uh, Ernest Borgnine is great. John Amos is great. Um, Michael Shannon as as um, eh, you know the early the early days of data as Haven sorry as the early days of data on Next Gen, he's nah, he's not annoying but he's sort of like very much like Haven is here, you know. But by the time you get 
as as the show goes on, you love Data more and more, and he becomes one of the best characters on the show. And presumably Haven would uh, be a great character after time, but I don't think that's going to happen here. Although Ernest Borgnine gets my favorite. You you heard it in the clip with Skaggs, where um, uh, do you think you're going to hurt his feelings? And Ernest Borgnine has a look on his face where he's sort of thinking. You could tell he's thinking like, yeah, I think the kid's got feelings. But he is kind of like, um, okay, sit down and, 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 you know, it's, I like that moment. That's, that's my, probably, possibly my favorite moment in the episode. But I'd like to read you something. One of the listeners, uh, the great Mike Doran, who seems to know everything, uh, I just, I just wanted to, to read. He put, and thank you, Mike, for leaving this comment. He put a comment on here. Uh, it's, give me a moment. Here it is. The history of future cop. Here we go. And I think I think this is pretty interesting here. Uh, the the pilot uh, made in '76 and bought by ABC and put on the shelf for future use. This is ABC's flush period, and they had far more series in development than they were really needed. ABC began a program where they would buy short flight series of six episodes to see whether they would work as weeklies. Uh, the Future Cop six-pack was bought for use during the 76-77 season. ABC didn't find room for it until spring 77, and not much room, apparently. A long story short, the Future Cop six-pack came and went, and ABC didn't renew. And... Yeah, that's you know that that seems right. Thank you, Mike. I, I really appreciate that. That yeah, that's that seems about right. That's what it looks like to me. It looks like they they ran the TV movie, they they picked it up for six episodes. Six episodes were made, and for whatever reason, they strung these this two parted together and tried to air it as a TV movie to give it more um, publicity, and it just didn't go. Unfortunately. Ah, the Mad Mad Bomber. I like how it is the Mad Mad Bomber, not the Mad Bomber, because uh, Bird Eye Gordon had made the movie The Police Connection, which I believe is 76, or possibly 72. Well, there you go. Uh, The the Mad Bomber, uh, also known as The Police Connection. I have the Code Red DVD, uh, which is the R-rated version, The Police Connection. I believe the Mad Bomber... It was the PG version, and it's a really good film. It's one of uh, Bird Eye Gordon's best, but I guess that's why they called it the Mad Mad Bomber, so you wouldn't confuse it. But there is something about like one of the radio uh, reports is like, and there's been a, um, a bomb threat placed at the bridge, and it's supposed to go off at 5 p.m. That came directly from the Mad Mad Bomber, or something like that. You know, it's a Mad 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 Bomber. Ah, uh, oh, I'll, I'll wrap it up with one more thing I forgot to mention. It is fun to see when they're doing the Navy stuff. It is fun to see Ernest Borgnine goofing around with a naval guy about Navy stuff because I'm I'm looking at that guy and I'm thinking, was he in McHale's Navy like Borgnine was? I bet he was. The problem is I haven't seen much McHale's Navy, so I, I don't really know for certain. But it's sort of a lovely thought that people would have probably seen that, the Navy chat, and gone, hey! Plus... One more, one more thing, and then and then we'll head on to um, well, go to where are we going? We're going to New Orleans, I guess, in a moment. But the moment with Ted Post directed, who directed tons of stuff on television, but he also, of course, made the wonderful 1974 film, I believe, The Baby, which is wonderfully. But it's one of those great. 70s horror films in in the lines of like a, a headless eyes or a scream bloody murder or uh well not quite a, a deranged but a carnival of blood just in that strange three on a meat hook and that, that strange uh, uh saint's children um it's one of the uh, asylum of satan it's just one of those i'll stop there children shouldn't play with dead things it's just one of those wonderful weird 
70s horror films, pre-slasher, post-Night of the Living Dead, that's just kind of, you don't expect it to be as sleazy as it's going to be, and it goes to some weird places, and it's got a great ending. My Brother Has Bad Dreams. Oh, that, that was a retitle of something. Sometimes Aunt Martha Does Dreadful Things. I don't know if that's a horror, per se. Uh, Night of Bloody Horror. Actually, that was 1969. All great films. I don't even remember what I was talking about now. Oh, McHale's Navy. Wasn't it great? I'm kidding, of course. Let's go to New Orleans. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans. Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Episode 14 of Bourbon Street Beat originally aired 4th of January, 1960. It's Kill with Kindness. The first episode that aired in 1960. I don't have writer-director credits on my copy of the episode. IMDb says director William J. Holt Jr., writer Marie Balmer. Let's go for that. This is a Cal-heavy episode, and we'll try not to call him Rex throughout. Cal is visited by a woman named Lydia Ames. Lydia Ames works for Maud St. John, who is one of those women living in the beautiful mansion out in the middle of nowhere, but the empire is sort of crumbling, as it were. We've been there before. Lydia says Miss St. John is being poisoned by someone in the household. Cal, please help. So Cal creates the character of Bill Reardon, kind of a scuzzy-looking hobo-y guy with a bum knee from a fight and ingratiates himself in with Miss St. John, who likes to take in folks and give them odd jobs. And she gives him, she gives um, Bill a room in the garage, a uh, room above the garage uh, to live in. And he does stuff with a Wilbur Wick, who's kind of a uh, gross guy who is technically the chauffeur. He also spears frogs and takes care of ants in the kitchen and takes care of cats. And we see Cal sort of limping around meeting all the people in the household. So yeah, so you have Maud St. John, you have uh, Wick, Wilbur Wick, you have Dr. Leo Watkins, who is uh, Maud St. John's on-site doctor, who's always drunk. You have Emma St. John, played by Nancy Culp, who wants to get away and get a job. She's constantly discouraged by her aunt, and uh, Emma's very dowdy. And then you have Michael St. John, who lives in town in a nice apartment, wants to be an artist. He's a hunk, and he could have, he, I mean, they could have big-time hunk off with Van Williams, if you know what I mean. He's in a convertible, he drives in every once in a while, gets a check from his aunt, and returns to New Orleans. So Cal is examining everything, he's trying to find out what's going on. He asks Rex to look into everyone's background. He asks Kenny to check out all the art galleries and places to see if anyone knows of Michael St. John. And he asks Melody to sort of go out with, you know, Mr. St. John. He hangs out at this bar. Melody, just go make friends with him. Don't get too close. Go make friends with him. So Cal is at this mansion, and he's, he's trying to figure out what's going on. And she does, Maud St. John does have a couple of sort of attacks, fainting and just vague attacks, which seem to imply to Cal that, yes, someone is doing something, but they don't know who's poisoning her. They don't know how she's being poisoned. Unfortunately, somewhere in there, two things happen. One, Wick sees Cal not limping, so he knows that Cal is faking it and is there for some other reason. And two... Rex finds out some information about Lydia Ames. A few years ago, she was arrested in Watertown, New York. 
for the suspected poisoning murder of her stepfather, Arthur Lowe. And I know what you're saying. Dan, Arthur Lowe didn't die in the mid-50s. He was on Dad's Army until around 76, 77, and then Bless Me Father till 81. He died, I believe, in 82. It's a different Arthur Lowe, folks. This is, this is the other Arthur Lowe, the one that did not bring us years, years of uh, laughter. You know how it goes. What was I talking about? And folks, forgive me. I'm using a new laptop today, so I'm, I don't know if I have the sound quite configured right. And it's a nice day, so I've got windows open. So I hear birds. I hear planes going by. You'll hear car, the occasional car pass out in the road. I'm sorry. This is a very um, um, orally fragrant plot description. Enjoy. So, yeah, so so we build up, and now Cal's like, oh, boy, Lydia, what's going on? And Lydia says, you know, I didn't do it, and that's how I knew she was being poisoned because I could see that happening to my stepfather, and, oh, gosh, what's going on? And then at a strange, sad, drunken party in the library of Maud St. John's house, Wick calls out Cal. <gasps> what's going to happen? Is he going to get tossed out of there? Are they going to beat him up? Will he be allowed to stay? Who's the poisoner? How's it happening? What's Michael St. John doing? And how much does Melody like him? Oh, gosh. I don't think we'll spoil too much of that. We might spoil some of that. Let me give you a blast, and Mitchell and I will dive right in. All right, everyone. Here we go with episode 14. This is a Rex-heavy episode. Yes? Yes. No, Cal. Sorry. I'm looking right at him on the screen right here, and I got their names. It's funny. Uh, when we talked about Portrait of Lenore before, I kept forgetting everyone's names. I couldn't remember Melody. I couldn't remember Kenny. Uh, it was... I. It hurt, but it feels better now. Thank you very much. And I, be, before I uh, ramble anymore, I've got someone here who you might be interested in hearing from about Kill With Kindness. Or maybe not. If not, jump ahead like 20 minutes. I'll wait. I'm kidding, of course. It's Mitchell Hadley, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. It's about TV. How are you, Mitchell? What's happening? I am doing just great. How are you, Dan? Good, good. I am. I've, I've got this bum knee. Uh, it's not it's not shrapnel or anything, but it's just sometimes I walk funny, but then sometimes I don't, and and creepy guys see me. Oh, I see I, what you're doing there. What I do? Oh boy. Um, uh, so so let's um uh, uh so I hope you're doing well. I hope all is well there. I am, and I hope uh, notwithstanding your disability there that you're doing well also. Yes, I'm I'm doing all right. Yeah, and I want to um before I because I always. M- forget to do this within the segments i always do this in the opening and close the opening and closings of the show are recorded two or three days before i post them so i just want to say if this episode is going up when it's supposed to it's about a week or so from uh, american uh, thanksgiving so happy thanksgiving everyone happy this thanksgiving is, yeah. this is a this is a perfect uh, thanksgiving episode because it's about poisoning old women Oh, I, well, well, when I think of Thanksgiving, really, uh, that, that's the first thing I think about. It's, I don't get to the pilgrims or football until later. It's, it's poison. Try to figure out the fun way to poison mm-hmm. the old lady. And I just and for, for my uh, book that I'm working on, I just watched the Green Acres episode, Never Trust an Old Lady. I don't know if you know that one. Ooh, I that's, don't know it by title. but that, That's the one where um, our, uh, uh, Oliver wants to plant his tomato plants. And he tunes into the Pixley uh, weather, and and the weather is basically on top of a car wash. There's like sort of a um, uh, like like a Swedish kind of uh, one of those like Hansel and Gretelly style, but it's not made of candy um, style um, cat homes. And there are two doors, and a little old lady comes out with an umbrella, and that means it's going to rain. And if the little old guy comes out and he's dressed like in shorts, that means it's going to be warm. And Oliver's completely incensed by the fact that this is the way they figure out the weather. 
and it only gets worse from there. <laughs> well, you know, that actually reminds me of uh, what we used to have here in Minneapolis. We had a bank that um, had for its logo, uh, it had the, the initials of the bank, but it had something on the top of it called the weather ball. And the color of the weather ball was, told you what the weather was going to be. Now, it, was, it wasn't random. It wasn't like fortune telling, but they even had a little jingle written about it where they'd say, uh, you know, when the weather ball is wearing green, no weather changes are foreseen. And uh, when the weather ball is uh, wearing white, colder weather is just in sight. And the whole thing like that. And it was one of the landmarks of the downtown skyline. That's fantastic. I, I I never heard of that, but now I want to look it up immediately. Yes, if you uh, if you look up uh, Weatherball or Northwestern Bank Weatherball, you right. will uh, find out all about it. Isn't but this it's great, a wonderful folks? part of a Minneapolis history? Isn't this great? You got some Minneapolis history. You I talked about a great Green Acres episode, and it's got one of those great in those moments in it too, where Oliver is so inundated with people coming at him with different. Like there's a singing um, guy, uh, a DJ named Walter, who sings the weather, at, who Eb follows, <laughs> and then um, Mr. Kimball uses the Poor Richard Almanac, which has very specific. Like when Oliver looks like like the the morning after he has to. Um, dig up his tomato plants because it's too cold. He checks the almanac and and the day before is something like it's going to be too cold for tomato plants. <laughs> and then he says, well, "What should I do today? Put out those tomato plants, you know, something like that." And he's just looking at it going, "You dirty," and and so never trust an old lady, but don't poison them. Be nicer than that. Yes. Well, you get all you get all this, folks. We've been talking for like three or four minutes. You get all this, and we haven't even discussed Bourbon Street beat. Let's do that now, Mitchell. We'll start. We'll start up high looking down on the world of this old crazy broad, and then, then we'll get more specific. But what did you think of Kill With Kindness? Well, actually, that's a pretty good lead into this, because this has one of the more colorful uh, casts of characters that we've had in a while on this show. You've got, you've got um, eccentric people in, in this of different types. It's, um, it's an interesting episode. It... Uh, has some very familiar names. Walter Burke is one of the actors in this, and you'll recognize him again if you watch any classic television or movies. You'll see him in a lot of character roles. You have um, Nancy Culp, who uh, has not yet made her way to Beverly Hills, but she, she's got a ways to go, but uh, she'll get there. Then, on top of that, we've got Frog Spearing. Yes. Which, um... that, that pretty much says it all. Yeah, and the the guy who does the frog spring, we were trying to, we've forgotten what his name was. We're just going to call him the kind of creepy guy. Or I think the, that the might be guy. Wilbur Wick. That would be the Walter yes. Burke character. And I think. Oh yes, yeah, yes. yeah, Wick, Wick, yep, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, were you done? I didn't mean to yeah, interrupt. No, you said no, frog spring, and I. I'm quite done. There, you can't really follow that. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, it's it's um, I. I, I think the thing with this episode is there are bits that I really liked. I mean that that Wick guy is is kind of a little gross, and I like. There's something about uh, we we've got the sort of uh, the, like the decaying mansion, like the sort of New Orleans, um, uh, not royalty per se. I, I don't know. I've forgotten the word I'm thinking of. Yeah, but the you know, faded, like the, faded royalty. I the, think the, the sort. The grand dames of families of the past that have kind of fallen on uh, leaner times. 
and, and you, you figure in a show like this, we're going to get that several times. And this is at least the second time, possibly the third? Third, I would third, think, yeah. Third. Okay, yeah, because I remember really early on, there was the, the sort of haunted housey one where the mm-hmm. guy gets, yeah, and, and with, oh yeah, with like Melody's friend that they yeah. go to see, and that one's, and then there's that other house, um, oh, with the, um, with the, with the, the woman, the woman, uh, the, the, um, uh, friend of, uh, yeah, it was like friend of Rex's parents. They used to hold big parties. Yes, the fountain yes. isn't working. So this is like the third of those. But this is nice because this is a variation. Whereas this one is, it's almost like with this one, they're not even trying to pretend like they're doing anything but humoring an old woman who has a lot of money. Yeah, it, it, it's like it's like Nancy Culp's character wants to go out and get a job, but she kind of it's a mix of just a general slothfulness and the woman um, saying, you know. Um, uh, Mitch St. John sort of saying, nah, you don't have to kind of thing. But she wants to go to Beverly Hills. She's been offered a job at the Commerce Bank. Mm-hmm. Mr. Yep. Drysdale needs an executive secretary. And Sharon Tate will be there for a couple of years. So that'll be great. You can be Sharon Tate. <laughs> oh, what was I saying? I forget. Oh, but, but um, yeah, so so you just get these these strange hangers on. Uh, and, and, you know, her, her Michael St. John, her, her nephew who shows up and is hunky and charms Melody and he's there and he just gets a check every once in a while and he's wants to be an artist, but no one knows who he is. And then my, I don't know, is my favorite guy, the doctor who's always drunk. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I, I, you know, I, I appreciate you wanting to keep a doctor on call. And if you have the money to do that and you, you're feeling sick, that that's, that's good. But I mean, the guys like I mean, Otis isn't this drunk on a, and the Andy Griffith show. Hey, I mean, would you it, want Otis operating on you? Could you imagine? Oh, maybe I, I was I was I, I can just oh, all I just just thought of right there is like <laughs> I just um uh, Blazing Saddles Gene Wilder's character. <laughs> Look at this hand, steady as a rock, but I shoot with this yeah. one. <laughs> That's what I see. Like, Otis, Look at this hand, Sur- surgeon. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, uh, but but yeah, so so it's this strange, and and then of course this woman who is sort of um, her assistant there, who we learn later on was accused of poisoning someone, and she's the one who calls in Cal, and she does a few suspicious things too, and everyone does at least one sort of suspicious mm-hmm. thing. You and have enough reason to suspect everybody in everybody, the household. Yeah. And um, and then you have uh, um. Cal going around with his bum knee, except when he forgets to. Well, and, and, and that, you know, that was really rank, rank false for me because mm-hmm. Cal is such an experienced detective, yes. not just in, in this series, but going back to when he was working with the police force. And um, to have given his character a backstory, which he does to explain to the old lady why he has come to try and, you know, try to find a, a job to put himself back on. Uh, on track and then to forget his his uh his limp to forget mm-hmm. that part of the backstory seems very uncharacteristic to me and um yeah i know i know that you can rationalize it you can say well you didn't know that uh that uh wick was watching him but it still seems like the kind of a mistake that cal would not make yeah yeah i i agree it's um i mean and and the fact that he's he he makes himself up to kind of look, he looks a little rough he's unshaven when, when he comes in mm-hmm. uh, but but then to you know almost like um what do i need i need a bum knee let's do it you know it's like he's adding a bit of theatrical flourish that he doesn't need right. and then he forgets about 
you know, it would be like, a, you know, I'm, I'm going undercover. Well, well, why the wig and the fake mustache? You can just go as yourself. No one knows who you look like. Yeah. No, no, no. I need this. I need to be in character. This character has the must, you know, this character has the bum knee. But then you, but then when Wick calls him out on it, he says, no, I was lying about the bum knee. So I, I like, I, I do like that the character he's created is a character who fakes a bum knee. Yes, like that's he's a nice doing. recovery. Yes, that he does do that nice because he's very sincere. And even though Wick doesn't believe it, um, Maud St. John is like, oh, you can stay. Oh, you men, you're just mm. crazy. <laughs> uh, can all right? I, I want to bring up one. Um, uh, so so Wick's Wick's a little nuts. They're all a little nuts yes. in here. But there there is um there is a a scene. Well, okay, there's a scene I really I really love. There's a shot I really love, followed by a moment that is a big huh kind of moment. Uh, there's like a garage area, and Wick and uh, uh, Rex are are sleeping. You know, their rooms are above this garage type thing, and so Rex is snoozing. All of a sudden, someone leans in and throws like fire into his garbage can. Yes. And in one shot, the 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 flames go up, hit the curtain. Uh, Rex leaps out of bed and grabbing like a sheet he pounds the fire out completely puts the fire out in one shot which i thought was very impressive um i'm wondering if they have terrified the executives at abc watching this can you imagine the liability that you would have in something like this now could could, could you imagine just like someone like like someone sitting by and going okay it's all right it's all right it's getting a little out of hand okay it's all you know what at, at what point would it have been like hit the sprinklers yeah. or whatever? Yeah, they must you know, have I, had fire extinguishers all over the place for that scene. And, and I can't imagine something like—I mean, I, they could have, I guess—but I can't imagine that's something you could do twice because you'd burn up like the set. Yeah, too. Yeah, uh, you, you, it, this had better work. Yes, exactly. It's mm-hmm. like you really got to go for, and maybe they put something on the sheet to to help. It, it doesn't matter though. I mean, you know, no. I don't. Uh, I don't know. want the. I don't want to make this sound like it was the second burning of Atlanta, but it was still. <laughs> you're you're talking about fire, and you're talking about it climbing the uh, curtains and all these kinds mm-hmm. of things. And uh, we've all seen enough fire prevention films from when we yes. were kids in school to know that this is how a big fire starts. It's how a yes. little fire becomes a big fire. Mm-hmm. And he's and just the when when I when I watched it the first time and realized that it was all one shot. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's impressive. It that's is. that that's like old school style silent movie stunts where they would just you know like a, a house would fall on Buster Keaton kind of thing you know all in one take and you're like, oh my god. And I, I, not that I go, oh my god, randomly when I watch silent movies. Sometimes I do. How can you not? But. Uh, <laughs> But there, there, there is just when that scene starts, I'm like, ooh, that's gonna get out of hand. But then he just gets in there and he's hitting the fire and he's hitting. The, you just gotta. I don't, I don't remember that being part of the fire prevention. You gotta hit the fire, just hit the fire. Yeah, and punch he does it, it. He does it. Yeah, and he puts it out. And it's like, wow, well done, Rex. Well done. Uh, that's that's really nice. And I'm wondering if they had multiple cameras. I'm wondering if they said we're only doing this once. And maybe they had multiple cameras. But then when the director sat down with it, he was like. Leave that shot. Just keep that shot. That's that's exciting. That's exciting because you see the fire building, and I just, I I I, I wonder if there was like a a spot where it was like you know if the fire passes the top of the set or something out. Yeah. So so it's like we only can do this once. You have to make sure the fire doesn't go that high. You got it, boss. Not that Rex talks like that, but um, you know that would be that would be me <laughs> saying that. But so you get that scene which I really like. Yes, it is. A, and, that's that's a terrific scene. 
And then he steps out onto sort of like the walkway alongside where the, the doors to the rooms are. And Wick is there, just kind of casually leaning there. And you see that, and your first thought is, Wick started that fire. I don't think I'm giving anything away. but no. that, that it's pretty Wick, obvious. Wick started that fire. And then your second thought is, wait a minute, they live in the same space. What? I guess, I guess he's outside, uh, and he would have got away if, if the fire had gotten out of hand. But still, do you want to... Use something, you know what, accidentally spray a hose in there or something. I don't know, you know, but it's just like, it, it just seems strange to me to, you know, like I, you know, the times when I like share an apartment with someone and, and if I get angry at them, I don't set their bedroom on fire. Right. Even if I'm near the exit. Because, eh, that just doesn't seem, like, my stuff is there. Fire is and an I, unpredictable thing. Yeah, fires are unpredictable, crazy things. And, and, I mean, maybe Wick doesn't have any... Maybe he's got some insurance thing or something like that. But it just seemed like a... The, it seemed like a dumb plan. Well, yeah, that's... the And and the fact that the two of them have rooms there, it in the first place, it makes it pretty obvious that Wick is probably the arsonist, which mm-hmm. doesn't do us as viewers any good because it doesn't add much suspense, even though you, you get the proverbial hand and footstep type of thing so that they're not showing the identity. But it isn't really that much of a secret. And at the same time, as you said, why doesn't he just throw a small bomb in there? It's going to accomplish the yeah. same thing, take out him as well. So mm-hmm. it, it that that is a, a little sloppy, I think. Yeah, and, and even I, I was actually expecting a moment where like uh, uh, Rex would have walked up to him and said, "Hey, how you doing? Uh, I am all right. What's what's going on in there? Oh, I just um, uh, someone said the and then Rex kind of looks at the ground like near the garage and mm-hmm. goes, "Hey, is that everything you own packed up in several suitcases? <laughs> yes. Why do you ask? Well, I was just wondering because someone set fire to my room. I do this every week. I air out the room, so I have to take all my stuff out." <laughs> Really, and 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 that car running with the trunk open—is that yours? Well, it might be. You know, I don't know. But it, I mean, it's already pretty obvious that yeah. he set the fire. But but that would be the uh, that would be. Ju- ju- you just see a shot where, like, uh, sort of from out in the driveway area, kind of looking up at them, and Rex would walk over and lean next to him and say something like, uh, "Yeah, this is, this is a little bit of a fire." And c- can I ask you a question? Yeah, is everything okay? Sure. Are those your suitcases? And the camera would just pan down, and you see a big pile yep. of suitcases, and they'd all be like embroidered, like Wick or something on them. <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 they are. Um, but uh, let's see, what else do you have about this one? Uh, I do have Melody when she has her date with Michael St. John. She drinks eleven orange juices. Actually, she does. She drinks uh, screwdrivers without yes. the booze. Yes. Well, it. Um, you know, it's a. It's a she's charmingly naive about all of these things but mm-hmm. at the same time you know it's like uh it's like the the, the smarmy michael st john applying his charms toward melody and uh you can see kenny's a little jealous about this yes yeah it's especially uh, this isn't really a spoiler but at the end she goes out with him again you know and it's it's sort of like i thought kenny and her were you know yeah, soul to soul. Special remember friends. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, all America remembered it. We went crazy for that in 1959. <laughs> that, uh, that, that's 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 interesting. But um, she's got to be awfully naive to fall for that. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, and, and especially since it, the, she's being sent there on assignment. Yes. You know, it's it's not you're you're not going there to woo this guy. You're, well, you're going there to woo this guy, but you're trying to get information out of him. Uh, see, uh, one one of the things um, I oh I have there's that there's that moment. Um, uh, and I will say that the drunk doctor, when he kind of threatens uh, Rex at one, yeah, Rex. Sorry, I'm, I'm all lost here. Cal, Cal at one moment. Um, uh, he's not very convincing. No, no, not uh, not really very scary. Let me let me tell you something, Mitchell. If you don't knock this crap off, you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. You're gonna be. You're gonna get it. <laughs> uh, he doesn't do that, but no, you know that's you the, know that's. It's that's still the same point. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, there's a, a couple of notes I had here. Um, the weird dance uh, right before um, uh, Cal. Yes, Cal, yeah. Cal, get, Cal mm-hmm. gets called out. They're all sort of dancing with Maud, and it's kind of the saddest series of dances you've ever seen. They're like putting bottles on their heads, and they're all dancing around, and it's like. It's the most forced. Is it bonami? Is that the, is that the right word? Something like that. It's it's so forced. Yes. It doesn't. It doesn't. It looks like no one in that house has had fun for about three decades. Well, that's again. And, it's that 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 crumbling uh, southern gothic nature again. Mm-hmm. It just seems as if that's uh, uh, where it is right in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's such a weird. It's it's kind of done weirdly too. Weirdly in a weird manner. Um, in that the camera is kind of on one in one corner of the set most of the time, slightly looking down at them, and, and mm-hmm. so they it, it isn't like we're right up with them and the camera is moving with them and we can like feel the spirit of them moving around. The camera is literally like far away, going, "Look at this! It's, this is kind of sad." And then when it moves in closer, it doesn't like pick like flattering angles. It it just kind of like this is kind of. Like this is like it, if David Lynch had done a Bourbon Street yeah. Beat or something. That, this, that's this is a good like, way to put it. Well, this is, and it's it's and I don't know whether that was on purpose or or but but then the director also did choose to use the one shot for the fire. So I'd like to think it's probably um, probably on on it. Uh, but but yeah, there's there's something just about that dance. I just have here what a weird dance, mm-hmm. and I agree with me on that. Yeah. Do, do do you have anything else? I think I have one or two more points. Um, I, that's, that's about it. Uh, although again, without giving anything away, as you know, <clears throat> one of the, we, lo- there are certain things we like about this show. You like swamps and quicksand. Yes. <laughs> and, um, I like, I like banisters and staircases because yes. you know, whenever you have a confrontation that is in proximate proximity to a banister or a railing or a staircase mm-hmm. or something like that, you know where this is headed and you know yes. that it isn't going to be good. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I will just say again, it, you will not be disappointed if that's your thing. Yes, and did, didn't we have like one of the early episodes has a fight like on a fire escape yes. or something like mm-hmm. that? And we both thought the person was going to fall, but then they didn't have to yeah, fall. Yeah, we were I both was, surprised by it. It was the exception that proves the rule, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You, yeah, you have to remind people that not not everyone who goes near a banister is on a staircase falls to their death. Mm-hmm. You, you have to remind that they can be used to get from one floor to another. Yes, it's a secondary usage in this case, but you're right. Yeah, exactly. Not all of us can can leap. Not all of us can jump that far. And oh, I got one more point. Uh, oh, I um, and so this is so that the gal who hires um, um, 
why am I messing their names? Rex, Rex, right? Cal. Or is it Cal? Cal. Cal. Why am I? I'm gonna. I gotta write Cal down here. I don't know why I'm messing up everyone's names today. Um, the guy who, the gal, the guy who, <laughs> the gal who hires. And now I can't get my pen open. Don't Forget worry, it. We can, we can edit it all out later. Yes, yes. Um, uh, so, so the the gal who hires Cal. Um, you, you know, as I said, we learned that she was accused of poisoning someone in like like somewhere in New York State, like Schenectady or, or Poughkeepsie or somewhere Upstate, like that. Upstate, I think. Upstate. He, he, yeah. And um and and so uh, she says, well, I know when someone's being poisoned. That that's why I called you in. And as she's telling him this, they're in the kitchen, and it's already been established that there are ants around the sink. And she and so there's this great moment where she's like, well, uh, well uh, she she kind of gets something out of a cupboard and she's doing something with it around the sink, saying, I know what poisoning looks like so I, and I didn't do that and I didn't do this so you have to help her please and she sets whatever the box is down and I think she leans in like for a hug uh, or something and as he's hugging her he kind of peers at what and it's like it's ant syrup yeah which I loved I loved because that's what you put on ant pancakes I, I think but, you're right but uh, but I love the fact that oh boy oh boy I, I you know it's like there well there were ants there so she put down the ant poison you know, I don't. I don't know that that's significant because we've already, you know, set up that there are ants there. Um, but but it is kind of like, hmm. She knows how to use poison, or she knows how to pour ants. Well, she's well to paraphrase ZZ Top. She's got poison, and she knows how to use it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so I think that's kill with kindness. I I um I think. Do you have anything? Well, else I think just you know the um the. Uh, the delight that Cal takes in talking about the recipe for frog legs. Oh yes, yeah. That, that yeah. I'm I'm sure that if uh, Rex hasn't already done this, that Cal has a perfect recipe for him, just the way he's describing yes. it. Yeah, they, yeah, and I wish I'd written down what the recipe was. Watch the episode, folks. You, you can, you can, um, you can, you can see him, see and hear him say it. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting episode. It's not one of my favorites. I, I think I like the atmosphere of it more than I sort of. I think the story is slightly clunky here and there, but there is a nice uh, a reveal where the poison is. Mm -hmm. I really like. Um, but it's it's not a favorite, but it's it's. I think it's I think it's a pretty good uh, episode. Yeah, it's um, it, it it is it is an average episode in a season that has been above average. Yes, exactly. And you're gonna you're gonna get those every once in a while, mm -hmm. and. Uh, so let's. Um, so Mitchell, where can we find you online? And did you? How about? Have you recently written a book? Well, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you asked huh? that. I have. Yes, I have Tell written a book. And um, you can uh, you can get my book, The Electronic Mirror, um, what classic TV tells us about uh, who we were and who we are and everything in between. It's a, a book of essays showing how you can track the evolution of American culture in the last half of the 20th century. Um, you can uh, get that at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or any other .com that specializes in uh, semi-good books. And you can also get it, uh, you can follow the links at my website, which is itsabouttv.com. Excellent. And what I am actually planning on doing this year, I have an old older relative. Uh, we'll call her Nana. Well, I guess sometimes I call her Nunu, but I'm going to call her Nana. And she was interested in reading your book. But what I'm going to do is I have arsenic, and she Ooh. does that thing where she she licks her fingers yes, and then flips yes. the page. I'm gonna I'm actually going to put some arsenic, lace the the corners. Uh, of the book with arsenic, I, I just want to see what happens. It's a good experiment. You know, we'll mm -hmm. see what happens if she, if she if she keels over. We'll just 
we'll have fun. You know what we'll do? If she keels over, we'll do that fun thing where we put a chalk outline around her yes. so when she wakes up, she freaks out. <laughs> but we have fun. We have fun with Nana Nunu. It's been great. So so that's uh, how you poison an old lady. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And, Mitchell, I will see you next time. Sounds good. Can you believe we're almost done with Green Hornet? It's been about a year. Holy heck. You guys are going to enjoy that discussion next time. You're going to enjoy hearing about the uh, next Bourbon Street beat, which is a rather intriguing episode. So, I hope you enjoyed the episode, everybody. Where uh, where are we online? Who knows? Eventually, supertrain.blogspot.com. I do know. At eSupertrain1 on Twitter. Eventually, Supertrain is the Facebook page. eSupertrain at yahoo.com. And that's uh, that's it for us. I'm at other places like some Polish American guy reviews things. Blogspot.com. I've got reviews uh, still on Bleeding Skull. And what else? Bleeding Skull book. Uh, 80s action movies on the cheap. It's a lot of fun. And yeah, that's about it for this. And enjoy no ending music. <laughs>